Today on Legalese, we are talking about the history of qualified immunity. Hey, greetings, everybody, and welcome back once again to Legalese. Now, as always, I am your host, Bob, and I want to thank you all so much for joining me here today. And if you happen to be new to my channel, let me especially welcome you. This is a podcast where we're going to be discussing all things constitutional law, as well as current events in other areas of law, politics, and culture. Now, I just want to remind you guys real quick that if you want to find out more about the show, you should go check out our homepage over at LegalEasePodcast.com. Now, there you can find uh, updates on the show. You can contact me. You can find an archive of past audio, uh, video, uh, articles, stuff like that. You can also buy a copy of my book and support the show and do all other kinds of cool shit over there. And if you want to make sure that you always get updates when I post new content, because I post content not just like videos like this here on YouTube, but I also do uh, an audio-only podcast version on Spotify, I also post articles over on Substack, and you can find all of those by going to our newsletter, and that is LegallyShow.com. And if you sign up for the newsletter, you will get notifications sent to you anytime I post any new content, uh, and that comes no matter what the content is or where it was posted. All right, so let's just jump right in today because we have my long-promised, and I'm going to assume long-awaited video, on the history of the Qualified Immunity Doctrine. Now, I want to start this episode out with a quote from the great Chief Justice John Marshall. In Marbury versus Madison, John Marshall said that, the government of the United States has been emphatically termed a government of laws and not of men. It will certainly cease to deserve this high appellation if the law furnished no remedy for the violation of a vested legal right. Now, this particular quote seems especially appropriate to me as a way to start an episode about the history of qualified immunity, because John Marshall said this right before he told Stephen Marbury that even though Marbury had indeed been wronged by James Madison when the State Department denied him his commission as a justice of the peace, but he he, being John Marshall, didn't have the authority to issue the writ of mandamus that Marbury sought that would have ordered them to hand over Marbury's commission. Therefore, in this case, the law actually furnished no remedy to that which he emphatically had a right to. But it goes even deeper than that. It is even more appropriate because just like qualified immunity, the problem John Marshall couldn't help with was a problem created by, actually, John Marshall. It was indeed completely his fault that Marbury didn't receive his commission because it had been his duty to deliver the commission to Marbury. Except that his appointment as John Adams' Secretary of State had ended and his term as Chief Justice had begun before he had delivered the commission. And in a way, the Supreme Court both created this problem and then absolutely refused to take responsibility for their mess while recognizing that it was indeed a mess that should be dealt with, 
but insisted that they were somehow not the appropriate people to fix the thing that they broke. And with this, I cannot think of a more apt political uh, history and historical event to equate with the judicially fabricated doctrine of qualified immunity. Now, qualified immunity is one of the most obviously unjustified legal doctrines in our nation's history. And although it is nominally an interpretation of our primary federal civil rights statute, that statute says nothing about any immunities, qualified or otherwise. And the fact is that the common law background against which it was passed also contained nothing like an across-the-board immunity for public officials that characterizes this doctrine today. So, to understand this doctrine, we need to start with the passage of Section 1983. So, the doctrine of qualified immunity is, at least nominally, an interpretation of our primary and principal federal civil rights statute. This is now codified at 42 U.S.C. Section 1983. And Section 1983 was first passed by the Reconstruction Congress as part of the 1871 Ku Klux Klan Act, which itself was part of a series of three enforcement acts designed to help combat lawlessness and civil rights violations in the post-war South. Now, notably, the original version of Section 1983 was passed a mere three years after the adoption of the 14th Amendment and was intended, in large part, to give teeth to the promise of liberty and equality enshrined in that particular amendment's provisions. Now, turning to uh, the codified area of law where Section 1983 now exists, it says, Every person who, under color of any statute, ordinance, regulation, custom, or usage of any state or territory or the District of Columbia, subjects, or causes to be subjected any citizen of the United States or any other person within the jurisdiction thereof to the deprivation of any rights, privileges, or immunities secured by the Constitution and laws shall be liable to the party injured in an action at law, suit in equity, or other proper proceeding for redress. So this statute creates a cause of action against which state actors who violate someone's constitutional rights uh, can get justice. Now, on its face, Section 1983 does not provide any immunity, qualified or otherwise. It simply states that a person acting under the state authority who causes the violation of a protected right shall be liable to the party injured and thus if qualified immunity is to have a valid legal basis, it cannot possibly come from the statute itself. Now, what we need to keep in mind is that, of course, no law exists in a vacuum, and statutes generally will not be interpreted to extinguish by implication long-standing legal defenses available at common law. For example, a statute making it a crime to willfully discharge a firearm at another person would not be construed to preclude a defendant from arguing self-defense because the self-defense is a properly and well-established background principle of our legal system. 
And so in the context of qualified immunity, the Supreme Court has appropriately framed the issue as whether or not, quote, certain immunities were so well established in 1871 when Section 1983 was enacted that we presume that Congress would have specifically so provided if it had wished to abolish them. And with that, the relevant question then would be whether or not the common law of 1871 included a general immunity for state agents that were so well established as to justify the doctrine of qualified immunity today. So let's look at the common law background of liability for government agents. Now, in the founding era, Constitutional claims would typically arise as a part of a suit to enforce a general common law right. For example, an individual might sue a federal officer for trespass. The defendant would claim legal authorization to commit the alleged trespass in his role as a federal officer, and the plaintiff would in turn claim that the trespass was unconstitutional, thus defeating the officer's defense. And as many very good scholars over the years have demonstrated, these founding-era legal lawsuits did not generally permit a good-faith defense of constitutional violations. Rather, the background and the legal assumptions at this time was that the government agents were, in general, strictly liable for constitutional violations that gave rise to a common law of torts. Now, the clearest example of this principle would come in the 1804 Supreme Court case of Little v. Barim. Now, that case involved a claim against an American naval captain, a General George, or excuse me, Admiral George Little, who captured a Danish ship off the French coast in 1799. This was during the quasi-war with France. And while federal law authorized seizure only if a ship was going to a French port, which this ship was in fact not, President Adams had issued broader instructions to also see ships coming from French ports. Now, the question at hand was whether or not Captain Little's reliance on these instructions from the president were a defense against liability for an unlawful seizure. Now, in an opinion uh, given by Chief Justice John Marshall in the Little case, this would illustrate how the Little court seriously considered but ultimately rejected the very rationale that would come to later be the support of the doctrine of qualified immunity. And in detailing a doctrine that would come to be known as the strict rule of personal official liability, Marshall would explain three things. One, the first bias of my mind, and this is a direct quote, was very strong in favor of the opinion that though the instructions of the executive cannot give a right, they might excuse from damages. But secondly, he noted that the captain had acted in good faith reliance on the president's orders, and that the ship had been seized with pure intention. And finally, Marshall found that, nevertheless, the court held that the instructions cannot change the nature of the transaction or, legal, or legalize an act which, without those instructions, would have been a plain trespass. So, in other words, 
the officer's only defense was legality and not good faith. Now, this strict rule of personal official liability, even though its harshness to officials was quite clear, would persist through the 19th century. And its severity was mitigated somewhat by the prevalence of successful petitions to Congress for indemnification. But on the judicial side, courts continued to hold public officials liable for unconstitutional conduct without regard to any across-the-board good-faith defense. For example, in 1891, the Massachusetts Supreme Court held members of a town health board liable for mistakenly killing an animal that they thought was diseased, even when ordered to do so by government commissions, or commissioners, excuse me. Now, early 20th century scholarship would also explain how, prior to 1880, there seems to have been an absolute uniformity in holding officers liable for injuries resulting from the enforcement of unconstitutional acts. And most notably, in the context of Section 1983 itself. In 1915, the Supreme Court would hold that the statute did not incorporate any freestanding good faith defense, and in the case of Myers v. Anderson, the court would hold that the Maryland election, uh, Maryland election officers were liable for enforcing a state statute that violated the 15th Amendment's ban on racial discrimination in voting. And they found the defendants in Myers argued that even if the statute was unconstitutional, they could not be held personally liable because the plaintiffs failed to allege that the action of the defendants in refusing to register the plaintiffs was corrupt or malicious, and furthermore, that malice is an essential allegation in a suit of this kind against registering officers at common law, and that Section 1983 does not dispense with the necessity of alleging and proving malice. Now, in Myers, the Supreme Court would reject these arguments. The court would explicitly note that the non-liability in any event of the election officers for their official conduct is seriously pressed in argument, but then stated that we do not undertake to review the considerations pressed on these subjects because we think they are fully disposed of. By the very terms of section 1983, when considered in the light of the inherently operative force of the 15th Amendment. And so, in other words, Given the plain language of Section 1983, the only relevant question was whether the defendants had acted unconstitutionally. Whether or not they acted in good faith or with malice was irrelevant. Now, although the Supreme Court did not elaborate on this point in Myers, the lower court decision that it affirmed had been much more explicit. So they found that any state law commanding such deprivation or abridgment of a constitutional right is nugatory and not to be obeyed by anyone. 
and anyone who does enforce it does so at his own peril and is made liable to an action for damages by the simple act of enforcing a void law to the injury of the plaintiff in the suit. And no allegation of malice need be alleged or proved. Now, the Myers Court rejection of any general good faith defense is exactly the kind of logic that the founding era cases alive and well in the federal courts after Section 1983 would have enacted. And now we turn to the creation and evolution of qualified immunity. So in 1967, the Supreme Court would ultimately destroy government agent liability in the very same case that first articulated modern qualified immunity. This case would be Pearson v. Ray, and it was a case involving a Section 1983 suit against police officers who had arrested several people under an anti-loitering statute that had violated the First Amendment. Now, the court came up with a doctrine of qualified immunity, arguing that law enforcement officers, when acting in good faith while carrying out their duties, could not be held liable for violations of an individual's rights. Now, the Supreme Court would hold that because the common law tort of false arrest allowed the defense of a good faith and probable cause, defendants should have that same defense in an analogous suit under Section 1983. And critically, the court extended this defense to include not just a good faith belief in the probable cause for the arrest, but a good faith belief in the legality of the statute under which the arrest was made. And it is worth noting that Pearson presents exactly the same kind of issue presented in Myers v. Anderson. Both involved state officials who violated an individual's rights by enforcing unconstitutional statutes, who then claimed that they should not be held personally liable because they were acting in good faith. However, whereas the court rejected this argument in Myers, it would just simply blatantly accept it in Pearson. And rather tellingly, the Pearson court would fail to cite Myers or otherwise even acknowledge that it was reversing its own precedent in that case. But nevertheless, despite ignoring prior case law and the common law background of strict liability for constitutional violations, the Pearson Court at least grounded its decision on the premise that the analogous tort at issue, which is false arrest, allowed a good faith defense at common law. And so one might then have expected the Qualified Immunity Doctrine to adhere, generally speaking, to the following model. You must determine whether the analogous tort permitted a good faith defense of common law, and if so, assess where the defendants had a good faith belief in the legality of their conduct. Now, contrary to this doctrine's popular conception, the purpose is not to confer immunity from having to pay monetary damages. Rather, it is about conferring immunity from having to go through with the cost of a trial at all. And this is why 
the vast majority of cases in which immunity is granted come from a pre-trial motion for summary judgment. However, as the Supreme Court has continued to refine qualified immunity over the next couple decades since Pearson v. Ray, it soon discarded even that very loose tether of history. And that is how, in 1974, the court would abandon the analogy to the common law of torts that permitted a good-faith defense such as false arrest, and instead held that a good-faith defense was available for all executive officers, and this was not just police officers, for any act performed in the course of official conduct. And between 1967 and 1987, three landmark cases would transform whatever sparse vestiges of common law of torts remained to be replaced with a more or less version of our modern qualified immunity doctrine. So, let's look at the landmark case law that would create the modern qualified immunity doctrine. So, here we have to start with the 1982 case of Harlow v. Fitzgerald. Now, the Supreme Court fundamentally changed the nature of the good faith defense that qualified immunity had been purportedly based on. Up until this point, qualified immunity had turned in part on a subjective test of good faith, which meant that a defendant had to be acting sincerely and with a belief that he is doing right. So, in other words, to claim qualified immunity, the defendant had to have an actual good faith belief that they were acting lawfully. However, in Harlow, the court would eliminate this requirement and instead held that defendants would be entitled to qualified immunity whenever, quote, their conduct does not violate clearly established statutory or constitutional rights of which a reasonable person would have known, end quote. And under Harlow's clearly established law standard, which does continue to govern qualified immunity right up until today, whether or not a defendant was actually acting in good faith is now entirely irrelevant. All that matters is that the state of the prior case law at the time of the defendant's alleged misconduct matches a clearly established law. And so plainly stated, the court had erected a significant barrier to overcoming qualified immunity. In Harlow v. Fitzgerald, the clearly established law standard about an individual whose rights have been violated could seek redress only if they could find a case nearly identical to their own in which the offending conduct was deemed to be a constitutional violation. Now, in the next landmark case, which is Malley v. Briggs, the Supreme Court would examine immunity for police officers with regard to acting on the basis of a faulty warrant. The court held that qualified immunity does not apply to a police officer when the officer wrongfully arrests someone based on a warrant if the officer who could not reasonably believe that there was probable cause for the warrant makes the arrest anyway. And according to this case, reasonability 
is determined by the action of an objectively reasonable officer and the action that they would take. And then in 1987, finally, we have the case of Anderson v. Crichton. Now, in this case, the Supreme Court held that when an officer of the law, and in the particular case of Anderson, we're talking about an FBI officer, conducts a search which violates the Fourth Amendment, that officer is entitled to qualified immunity if the officer proves that a reasonable officer could have believed that the search constitutionally complied with the Fourth Amendment. Now, the relevant question that a court should ask is whether a reasonable officer could have believed that the warrantless search was lawful, and they must consider clearly established law and the information which the officer possessed, and the Supreme Court would hold that subjective beliefs about the search are irrelevant. And in our very final case today, we look at 2009's Pearson v. Callahan. Now, the court would strike the final blow to pretty much all future civil rights claims against law enforcement. Courts would now claim that they must first determine whether a clearly established law existed before determining whether misconduct amounted to a constitutional violation. Now, courts began dismissing claims before ever deciding the underlying constitutional issue, never setting precedent and never developing the required body of clearly established law. And so, the modern doctrine of qualified immunity is therefore completely untethered from any statutory or historical baseline. And the text of Section 1983 makes no mention of any immunities, qualified or otherwise, and the relevant history establishes a baseline of strict liability for constitutional violations, at most providing a good-faith defense against claims analogous to certain common law torts. And so, in 1915, the Supreme Court would confirm that Section 1983 provides for no general good-faith defense before reversing itself without explanation more than a half-century later. And yet, qualified immunity functions today as an across-the-board defense based on what they call clearly established law standards that were completely unheard of before the late 20th century. Now, although in recent years the Supreme Court has made some token attempts to justify the doctrine of qualified immunity on historical grounds, many current and previous members of the court have very candidly acknowledged the uncomfortable truth that the modern doctrine has, at the very least, diverged markedly from any plausible historical baseline. However, the problem here is that even when they do recognize a qualified immunity, uh, we get what Justice Byron White would refer to as a, quote, freewheeling policy choice, end quote, and he said that in the case of Malley v. Briggs. And furthermore, he would point out that this is not consistent with the origin in common law doctrine, nor is it consistent with any congressional purpose of intent of Section 1983, since the statute on its face does not provide for 
any immunities whatsoever. But that recognition is entirely worthless when, in the very next breath, they proceed to apply the freewheeling policy choice with all legal force of a doctrine that is justifiably established in law. However, the deeper we go, the more problematic these doctrinal absurdities become, and this is especially true with the ever more stringent qualifier of clearly established law. Now, imagine for a moment how nonsensical this would be under any other circumstance. If we allowed police to use the same tactics in all potential crimes, not just those tied to a violation of a private citizen's rights. So let's imagine a situation in which a woman goes to court seeking injunctive and declaratory relief against a habitually abusive boyfriend who regularly beats her. And so, on that basis, she is seeking a permanent restraining order based on his history of temporary restraining orders that had been filed over the years against him for the exact same abusive pattern of behavior. However, because a permanent restraining order is a civil action that will afford the defendant respondent a chance to defend himself by factually refuting the allegations against the claims made against him, let's imagine that when this abusive partner is given the chance to defend himself against the allegations, he doesn't do that and instead goes on to state the following. Well, actually, Your Honor, I am seeking summary judgment and submit a motion to dismiss under Rule 12b-6 for failure to state a claim for which relief can be granted. Well, why should you be treated any differently than any other abusive partner in my court? Well, you see, this was a completely unique situation. No reasonable boyfriend in my position would have any reason to believe that giving her a black eye is domestic violence. Furthermore, she has not provided any case that meets the clearly established law standard. No precedent establishes that when a woman makes roast beef for dinner two nights in a row and her partner expresses a dissatisfaction by throwing that dinner on the floor, forcing her to eat it off the ground, and smacking her a few times, that this qualifies as a violation of any clearly established right. But, Your Honor, this is not true. In Barton v. Jessup, the court would rule against a man who would get angry at his wife for overcooking his steak and lash out in violence. Shut up, Debbie. The men are talking. You see, Your Honor, Barton was beating his wife. You see a ring on my girl's finger? We are not married, therefore Barton is irrelevant. All her argument here does is prove that she is no better at reading than she is at cooking. But that's not true, Your Honor. I was, I said, shut up, Debbie, the men are talking. And that is why this case must be thrown out, because it constitutes a momentary exercise of discretion, and I acted in good faith on the belief that I was simply teaching this dumb bitch an important lesson and not engaging in any kind of violation of her rights. Son, you are a monster and your actions are unconscionable. Is there any reason I shouldn't lock your ass up and throw away the key? Did I mention I'm a police officer? Case dismissed. You are free to go, officer, and thank you so much for your service.
now that we have more than a decade between us and the last qualified immunity landmark in Pearson v. Callahan in 2009, we can see the effect that this major shift in 1983 jurisprudence has had on the problem when the court focuses primarily on the opt-in and even focused solely on the clearly established law test that is untethered from the crucial constitutional violations test, and the results are not good. At this point, I want to direct everyone's attention to an uh, incredible article, and it is actually a series of articles uh, that were published by Reuters uh, in 2018, and they were called for cop to kill special Supreme Court protection. Now here they have done some amazing work focusing on qualified immunity starting around 2001 and going up to the present day. And in fact, they cover a lot of particular stories about how qualified immunity tends to affect those who actually bring suit against the police and lose. But more than that, they have done a real deep dive into the data as, long, as well as statistical analysis that shows in a very scientific and conclusive manner the effect that these most recent shifts in Supreme Court doctrine have had, and there are some truly catastrophic consequences. Now, I will, of course, be linking to uh, this uh, series of articles from uh, Reuters that I'm talking about on the show notes page, and in this case, I not only recommend but insist each and every one of you go read it after you have finished watching this video. However, I do want to briefly share three key points that I took away from that article uh, that I think really helped to highlight how the, the post-Pearson jurisprudence has made the problem substantially worse than the changes that we saw that resulted from the 1980s cases of Harlow, Malley, and Anderson. So for one thing, appeals courts are granting qualified immunity to police much more than they used to. Now, Reuters would analyze hundreds of appeals in court rulings according to Westlaw's database between uh, 2005 to 2019, and they would find a noticeable spike in grants in the last few years in light of the frequent Supreme Court interventions in favor of defendants. Now, in the first three years, they looked at appeals courts granted qualified immunity to 44% of cases, but by the last three years that, we, that they looked at, the number had jumped up to 57%. Now, they also discovered that the courts had changed how they are navigating the two-part qualified immunity test. And since 2009, when the Supreme Court would rule that judges do not have to answer the question of whether there was a constitutional violation, but can instead focus solely on a clearly established law prong, courts are indeed increasingly following that route, which is contributing to the overall increase in the rate at which qualified immunity is granted. Now, also, this Reuters investigation began with a very interesting disagreement that was found between Justices Alito and Justice Sotomayor in a 2017 case. 
when the Supreme Court would decline to hear an excessive force case in April 2017 in, line, in a line from Justice Sonia Sotomayor's dissent from denial of cert. This would catch the attention of the people at Reuters. In this case in particular, the case we are talking about is Salazar Lamone v. Houston. And in her denial of dissent, she would accuse the court of handling appeals brought by plaintiffs less favorably than appeals brought by the defendants. Now, Justice Samuel Alito was shoot back in his own opinion, questioning, questioning Sotomayor's conclusion, saying that she had not shown any data to back it up. And so, for that reason, Reuters set out to get a sense of who was correct in that situation. And what they found was really an unequivocal vindication of Justice Sotomayor's concerns. So they say, finally, we answered the question that we set out on this journey to answer. Did the Supreme Court grant more cert petitions brought by defendants? And bear in mind that in this case, defendants mean uh, police officers who are defending themselves against a civil action from a, uh, from a citizen whose rights they have allegedly violated. And so again, she asked, did the Supreme Court grant more cert petitions brought by defendants? Now, basing their numbers on work done by a really, really great lawyer and legal professor, uh, William Bowd, who has written about the court's special solicitude for defendants in qualified immunity cases, Reuters would identify 121 cases in which cert was sought in an excessive force case involving claims against police in which qualified immunity was a key issue. And defendants and police would file at roughly the same rate, but the court would be 3.5 times more likely to grant cert in a case filed by defendants. So in this case, in fact, Justice Sonia Sotomayor was entirely correct. All right, and that is my history of qualified immunity. I really hope you guys enjoyed the video. If you can, and you would take a few moments for me to do all of those things that help to trigger Al Gore's rhythm, uh, I would very much appreciate it. So, if you could, you know, uh, hit the like button. If you like the video, hit the dislike. If you dislike the video, uh, definitely leave me a comment and let me know what you thought about this episode or the topic we discussed. I, I always love to get your guys' thoughts on episodes and to uh, interact with you to the best of my abilities in the comment section. Also, make sure to definitely subscribe to our channel and share the show. Uh, I just ask if you would think of someone you know who may enjoy this show or may get some value out of this particular episode here today, please take a moment and send them this episode. And if you would do that for me and help me grow the channel in that manner, I would greatly appreciate it. And so all that's left to do is to sign off. And so this has been Bob for Legalese, talking about the history of qualified immunity. And of course, as always, Cartago de Lenda Est. <laughs>